the future is the world where you're pulling into the city uh, on the highway and there's a big billboard that says accept cookies for that city so then you know all the signal phase and timing you know where all the work zones are you know all the critical information you need to know it's all infused into your vehicle welcome to the bike lane i'm your host jake siegel with us today is roger lonto director in the global automotive practice at strategy analytics which is now owned by tech insights as director of automotive mobility in the global automotive practice Roger has a powerful voice in the definition of future trends in automotive safety, powertrain, and infotainment systems. Roger draws on more than 30 years' experience in technology industry as an analyst, journalist, and consultant. He's conducted and participated in major industry studies, created new research products and services, and advised numerous clients on strategy and competitive issues throughout his entire career. Roger is a prolific blogger and frequent keynote speaker at industry events. He's on the advisory boards at Automobility LA, part of the LA Auto Show, and the ITU's Future Networked Car event. His industry leadership has been recognized with him recently being inducted into the TU Auto Hall of Fame in Forma. Last but not least, Roger's a friend and longtime supporter of the American innovation within the automotive community. He was a big supporter of me personally and our first company, Livia, which was acquired by Ford. Roger has always been down with creating better and faster user experiences and a true tech guy. Roger, welcome to the bike lane. Thanks a lot, Jake. Let's start off first with your background and and just talk to our listeners and and many of the folks are, are in the business community within automotive about how you first got into tech and automotive. I know it's a great story. Well, I came in through, into it through the retail point of sale side of the market research industry and, and consulting in that space uh, when PCs were big and Stores like Staples and Office Depot, Best Buy and Circuit City and Computer City. Remember Computer City and Incredible Universe? Oh, yeah. Uh, we're just getting in the business and, and bringing technology to the masses. And then I transitioned into uh, telematics research with Telematics Research Group and Connected Cars. And I was really, I have to be perfectly honest, rather skeptical. And, and I have to say the, the founder of that company was kind of a, a definitely a car enthusiast. And I'm more of uh, somebody you'd call... Uh, car tolerant, and uh, but you know I, I'm all about technology and and who isn't interested in saving lives, and uh, clearly vehicle connectivity uh, is a providing that step towards that life saving uh, uh, proposition, and so uh, dove in and started traveling the world, rounding up clients for Telematics Research Group, and then uh, iSupply after they acquired them, and then transitioned into strategy analytics where I moved a little bit more into the forefront at speaking at more events and carrying the flag for uh, using technology to save lives, save money, save time. And um, also, uh, in spite of not being a car enthusiast, making sure I had a car that was a little bit more up to date. So I've been driving BMW ever since I started at Strategy Analytics, and I continue to drive BMWs today. It's a great story. And one of the things that I've always been attracted to, but also critical of is that in Detroit, it feels like we're always driving and riding in the latest and greatest. I feel when I first moved to Michigan from the East coast, I was like, wow, like everybody here drives big three auto. And one of the things that's uh, very different from not being from Michigan is that the people in Michigan always have the latest gear. Therefore, I think a lot of people in industry, don't realize just how long vehicles are on the road and lifespan. I mean, that you know it, you see it, but then when you you actually realize that the decisions that they make have 
impacts in some cases 15 or 20 years after those decisions and it takes sometimes 10 years for those those uh, new products to come in to, to really be there so the the fact that you are coming at this from an automotive perspective without being like a, a, a born and raised Detroit person I think brings a really in some cases, sobering look to um, uh, various connected systems and, and how fast they are to use for, for, for many of the types of solutions that have been out there. Jake, what are you talking about? My parents met in Detroit. My father went to Cass Technical. Jeez, come on. I know, but you know, I mean, East Coast guy. It's, it's, uh, I mean, I'm not an East Coast guy. I'm from Ohio, truth be told, but uh, I just, it's not, Ooh. it's just a, di- I know, I know, right? But, um, <laughs> Ohio University, not Ohio State. Sorry for all the Ohio State fans out there. I'm actually from Columbus originally, all that. But um, so let's talk a little bit about connected vehicles and automotives. So in the past few years, which have been just crazy with you know, chipset chip shortages and things alike, what are what are you seeing as some of the biggest changes that that have kind of come across for in your desk the last last few years? Well. Obviously, it's all about COVID, and uh, in the early days of COVID, you know, all of a sudden, the space that I work most directly in, uh, mobility, suddenly was vaporized. You know, no one, no one is using, you know, micro mobility. All of a sudden, uh, no one's, you know, using shared cars. There's nowhere to go. Schools are shut down. Businesses are shut down. People are working from home. Uh, ride hailing took a big hit, and very quickly, actually, just in a period of months. Micromobility came back strong. It benefited from the fact that the doors were opening to to micromobility from a regulatory standpoint, simultaneous with uh, doors reopening after uh, the easing of COVID uh, restrictions. But uh, people actually liked the idea of car sharing. So car sharing recovered quickly, thank goodness. Uh, and ride hailing has also recovered with the help of delivery, which COVID brought us. So what COVID introduced into the market uh, aside from the, the supply chain issues, which is obviously exceptionally unfortunate um, and which persists to this day. But COVID has strangely brought forth a greater mix of transportation options on roads, both urban and suburban. And uh, we're seeing much more dedicated lanes in, in urban areas. And we're seeing mobility, micromobility expand and flourish so that means when you're driving a car today, uh, and and of course the demand for vehicles came back strong once the doors opened again and people were going back to work, uh, you're encountering more two-wheeled vehicles now, uh, as well as pedestrians. And so we went from empty streets to even busier streets than before, and a more complex streetscape, which is putting new demands on the industry. So the the, the chip shortage uh, situation. It is a problem, and I, I felt it personally. I have a 2022 uh, X3 BMW, and my digital radio was deleted, and my uh, digital key was deleted on the vehicle, and uh, the lumbar support on the passenger seat. <laughs> but I, I've, I'm quite confident I'm not the only one seeing feature deletions on their new cars. But more importantly, the streetscape has become more complex, which means we have a greater need for solutions. We have heard a lot about this on on our show on the bike lane. Uh, Noah Bunyan from People for Bikes was talking about the infrastructure changes. Uh, even I was watching the Tour de France wrap up this weekend, and as they go around in Paris on the Champs Elysees, they, they even mentioned the, the commentators were mentioning about 
there was some discussion about removing cars from this massive 24-7 busy roadway. Roger, how how are the how's the automotive industry at looking at these types of infrastructure changes? Um, opening up the door a little bit about the infrastructure bill, but can you talk a little bit about this discussion? Because a lot of the discussion points we've had, and you and I've talked about this for feels like a decade plus, feels like it's actually now moving. So I'm curious back to with these infrastructure changes for micro mobility lanes. How are the auto companies? Uh, looking at this, are they being embraced? Is it is it accelerating? Is it a wait and see? Like, what what's your what's your read on this? I, I think the challenges are going to become even more severe because there is a a struggle going on if you're a city planner to get people back into public transportation. In some places, people have gone back, but but not universally so. And so people have jumped back into their cars. You know, you have this big metal cage protecting you against all the microbes that might be out there and, and automakers have made accommodations to make cars safer, uh, germ-free environments. Uh, with regard to the, the broader trends uh, towards cities, particularly in Europe, but not not only in Europe, discouraging vehicles from entering the cityscape and in, in, in the urban environment, that's a movement that I do not believe is going to go away. And uh, what, you're, what I'm hearing is uh, an increasing recognition that if we're looking to build out the charging infrastructure, cities may be actually discouraging uh, the creation of a lot of charging infrastructure within the city. In other words, really, you know, rolling up the, the red carpet in terms of limiting parking, limiting charging options, do not bring your car into the city center. Thank you very much. Mm -hmm. And so what we had pre-COVID was actually a lot of resistance to micromobility uh, Post-COVID, uh, it's a wholehearted embrace. Uh, E-bikes are, you know, there's some talk about e-bikes outselling EVs, uh, EV cars. So this is a complete lifestyle behavioral change that is being promoted and embraced. And as for how automakers are coping with it, automakers can't make enough cars right now, mm -hmm. which is why prices are, are still going up. So I'm not sure the extent to which automakers feel they have a problem at the moment. People like cars, they're getting cars, these policy decisions, it will take, uh, you know, it will take more time for them to, to play out. It's an interesting point you made about where charging networks are going. I mean, I know like the old school playbook, which probably still is probably going to be around 30 years from now is, is only allow parking for the number of cars you want in a city. And, you know, New York's done very well with that. And with, we haven't even touched on autonomous vehicles, including level three, but just from a, a battery electric vehicle per stand, standpoint is for people that are commuting from uh, the greater New York area down from Connecticut or over from New Jersey, there's not going to be a range issue. But uh, where I live, like if people end up going back to work full time uh, five days a week, we're just going to see just another Arm uh, Carmageddon situation on I-75 from uh, the suburbs uh, going south or uh, kind of pick your freeway that you want to be in where maybe having reduced charging, but that probably in in conjunction with an increase in public transit options will, will be there. It's not something that we've really discussed on this show much about how to limit the amount of vehicles. And when you start enabling some more of these micromobility transit lanes and you realize how quickly you can get down from one place to the next, 
adding range for an e-bike. I mean, there's there's definitely something there. And how do you think that the interest rates going up and the issues of of even like the tax credit for battery electric vehicles plays out. And I don't even know, I used to ask a question like this and say three years out, but I don't even know if that's the right term. So I'll just leave it open-ended with micromobility infrastructure planning as a function of interest rates and, and uh, BEV tax credits. Well, first of all, it's pretty clear that people want to get back into cars. The demand for cars is intense. And it's funny where the conversation around EVs is slowly shifting from you know, nobody wants them to. Well, some people want them, maybe like 20% of consumers want an EV. Uh, I think industry executives who are still manufacturing ICE vehicles are whistling past the graveyard. That that figure could shift very quickly. I'm not I'm not convinced that that's a, a, a gradual shift. You know, the way people's uh, uh, inclinations are influenced on this, people have seen the Tesla's multiply and they're rapidly becoming aware that there are alternatives clearly you know Ford and Hyundai and Volkswagen and, and a growing list of, of alternative Toyota uh, and so that that shift might come faster and be only constrained by supply uh, I'm actually kind of shocked at how you know reasonably priced EVs are right now uh, and that may be because the the tax credit proposition uh, isn't quite as compelling as a, a straight up rebate uh, on, on getting a, an EV. Mm-hmm. But more and more people, and, and so it has a kind of a momentum to it, are seeing their neighbor with the EV. And I think more and more people are making that decision quietly. This is the last ICE vehicle that I buy right now. So I think a lot of consumers are making that decision. The next car I buy will be an EV. It may not be next year, it may not be the year after, but I'm not buying another ICE vehicle. Um, and in spite of all you hear about the challenges of, of charging, uh, what you also hear about is the rapid expansion of the existing charging infrastructure and organizations that are coming to terms with that. And there are issues with that. It's not a simple pro- uh, proposition. It can be hard to find a compatible, available charging station and get the proper location. And the there are debates growing about how fast chargers can be almost as expensive as running your vehicle with gasoline, uh, depending on whether you're using high test or regular. And so overcoming all these complexities does remain a, a sort of a, a mitigating factor in, in the adoption of EVs. But... Uh, I, I think we're we're well on our way to that transition. Timing wise, uh, I, I we have a forecast. I don't have it to hand, but I, I think generally speaking, it's likely to happen faster than than people anticipate. Yeah, I really I hope that's the case. Like uh, I'm sure um, most of the listeners uh, <laughs> to the to the show that the internal combustion engine ICE vehicles. Uh, there, there's still going to be a place. I mean, I, I think it's, uh, reminds me a little bit of the turntable that, uh, I still love in my vinyl collection, which has dwindled, but still there and time and place for it. But, uh, I do think that at some point it's going to come down to just dollars and cents for people looking to own a vehicle. So as long as vehicles are owned and used in personally owned vehicles, whether they're owned or leased to be clear, it comes down to that monthly payment for, I, I don't know the percentage, but I got to think it's over 90%. It's a monthly payment issue. And the um, the tax credits, uh, the, the rising interest rates, 
and then the feature push. So I, I, um, I think that in kind of bring, walking this back a little bit to e-mobility and, and just in general bike lanes is people being more open to it. And your, your comment is, uh, right on about, uh, people are saying like, this is the last ice vehicle or, or going to split. I've also heard from some other, uh, sources that people are looking to split the home where one, one will have one ice vehicle for the big trips and we'll have that one for going around town. And hopefully there's a, a much wider adoption is, uh, uh, kind of reminds me of, uh, my dad. Obviously I love my dad. He, he was always trying to get him to try new food and, and, um, kind of old school, liked what he liked. And, you know, you kind of have to like open up the at Thanksgiving to a couple of new things before you, you bust out kind of the crazy new food for Thanksgiving. And I think maybe, maybe automotive might be seeing something along the same lines where to get people really open to a world where there's bikes and scooters and e-bikes wasn't around maybe that first experience where they've got uh, an electric vehicle, they're now embracing it. And then they're also getting a package delivered from USPS on, from an electric postal service vehicle, or maybe it's a, a last mile delivery cargo bike dropping something off that that might just be enough to kind of help create a different vibe within the, the communities people live in to accept these types of transportation. Well, there's two, two issues um, that I'm thinking as I'm listening to you. And one is uh, speed to market and uh, the software defined vehicle. So one of my sons has a Tesla and he just paid $200 to have uh, an autopilot function activated for a week that he was on vacation for automated passing and, and, and such. And that brings to mind the issue facing the entire industry. If it's a software defined vehicle, the software is going to require updates. Basically, am I buying a car or a license to access all this software that's in the car? So the automakers are having to, to have these long-term relationships with their software providers where they're paying you know, licensing fees on an annual basis, but they haven't adjusted the model around selling the car uh, to have an ongoing relationship with the customer. Um, and that's a problem. That's a big, big disconnect in the industry. Uh, with regard to two-wheeled vehicles, that, that, those vehicles don't last that 11 to 15 years that we hear about with cars. And that's both good and bad. The, the good part of it is those, those vehicles, those uh, e-scooters and e-bikes are evolving very rapidly towards they're becoming more rugged. So they are lasting a little bit longer. And we're seeing the more broad adoption of swappable batteries, which again becomes a business model issue. Mm -hmm. And so this is a very fast moving space. And the pieces uh, you know, on, the, on this uh, chessboard, if you will, are, are, are moving very rapidly, uh, not not staying in one place. The issues are changing. And so uh, regulators open the door to e-scooters, and then they're opening the door wider and wider and wider. And don't underestimate that dedicated lane stuff, because that's that's real. And uh, that is happening all over the world. A great point about the swappable batteries and some some key improvements. Uh, we have Bob Marjavikas, who's an EVP at Specialized on last month's show in the bike lane and talked quite a bit about the e-bike growth and, and just the pace and the, the like how affordable they're becoming and the legislation's in place. So the and just working through it, you brought up a great point about the uh the SaaS business model where you charge this fee to a company and and in, historically in SaaS not even automotive related you'd either charge a per seat fee or you charge some dollar amount which covers up to x number of seats so in the automotive example it could be a company that's selling safety service software and they tell an OEM for x million dollars a year on a 10 year contract your entire fleet is covered 
And but they they would not historically be selling that when you buy the vehicle and and people that are my age and older and I'm I'm 40 about to turn 41 it's like clearly not used to having a subscription service in a car where Gen Z is probably a lot more uh, accommodating for the subscription services. I also learned and and this is this is kind of interesting. I wasn't thinking about this part of the show, but we're hearing the same thing for the ITS providers, the intelligent transportation system providers, is that cities. And hopefully the infrastructure bill will help here, but cities are used to buying a black box. They bolt that black box on a pole for my terrace or 3M or somebody, or, and they're like, I don't pay for software. I buy the box. So you have companies like auto talks, um, giving them a great plug, great company, making these roadside units known as ROSUs. Everything's got an acronym in, in the ITS community. They would buy these boxes for six grand or 10 grand. And that's how they've uh, funded the cost of developing and maintaining software, where now you have programs from either products from Qualcomm or even products from companies like Cisco that are ITS service providers. And they're like, look, you can get your platform set up, but you got to go to a different supplier for that. So just like you mentioned from a consumer standpoint, I think that same issue might be in front of us as well with cities is that they're going to have to shift over to a, a SaaS model. And maybe the whole uh, business community just has to learn more about SaaS and get get comfortable with that. Well, I think you're going to see more like the Crown Castle, American Tower kind of model. So there'll be, there'll be mass in cities, maybe even on every corner where a a provider that owns that mast is leasing out space to the various different connectivity propositions, whether it's, and, you know, we've got this 5G densification problem. Uh, we, you know, you had the cruise, cruise automation vehicles come, you know, come to a stop and jam up the streets. They found a white zone. We need densification of the cellular network. It's just not good enough uh, for what we're trying to do. And so, uh, you know, the future is the world where you're pulling into the city uh, on the highway and there's a big billboard that says, accept cookies, <laughs> accept cookies for that city. So then, you know, all the signal phase and timing, you know, where all the work zones are, mm -hmm. you know, all the critical information you need to know about, you know, what streets are shut down or one way and all that. It's all infused into your vehicle mm -hmm. and you're sharing your information in real time. And uh, it, in the end, further to this, we need better communications between those two-wheel and four-wheel vehicles. And when you talk about the ITS community, I hate to say it, but they are so far behind the eight ball on, on getting up to speed to where they need to be in terms of integrating cameras and LIDAR and um, uh, bringing in CB to X uh, kinds of technology. Maybe even satellite has a role to play for, for backhaul uh, at least. But um, we have a very primitive road network today, and we need a big, big step forward from uh, from the ITS folks. Yeah, I agree. They they are responding quickly. I had a, a great conversation with the labor union of uh, work zone workers and out in DC, and um, I mean they're they're really leaning in on this. And there's a lot of other worker issues that are out there for for people on the roadways, whether we're talking police, fire. Uh, construction workers, uh, roadside people. Uh, I mean, people that are like at the, in the most vulnerable state. And that's something that we think is the lowest, uh, the first priority day one use cases. And you mentioned about you enter a city and uh, hopefully that pop-up doesn't cover up anything important when you, when you get that, or your car doesn't pull off the side of the road, unless you accept <laughs> terms. I'm still trying to find the one person that read the iTunes terms and conditions, uh, cover to cover. I, I haven't even seen a blog on that. If someone sees that, drop me a I know it on LinkedIn now. I'd love to I'd love to share that out. It'd be kind of funny, but it, it's um, 
that type of experience about going for the vulnerable workers, I think is where ITS has done a great job advancing and looking at things, just looking for intrusion alarms. Um, I mean, Hostel Alert's done a fantastic job bringing in, I mean, they were first through the wall, they got bloody doing it, but they, they were first through the wall to get notifications of these types of first responder vehicles going out. And now they're supporting the, as you, as you may know, Roger, we've got the work zone data exchange, which is supported by, by the federal government. And I'm really encouraged to see that. And I mean, there's a lot of work that still needs to be done on the two wheel comment. We've got our consortium, uh, shameless plug here for, for the consortium, but the SAE vulnerable road user consortium that we brought up and Roger, you're there at the first workshop and we worked on that for years. So it's happening and I feel like it, it is accelerating, but, um, it always feels like it's not fast enough, but I I've been telling people forever that, uh, less forever, but for at least the last 10 years that it's, it's, um, Things just take time with these type of legacy industries where primary innovation would be asphalt products or other sorts of things. And now now we're moving to digital. Well, there was a there was a big uh, infrastructure event some months ago and and the uh, award winning, you know, uh, product designs were for connected street signs, you know, like warning signs mm -hmm. and, and, and I guess cones and things, which was sort of like, uh, OK, that's a step in the right direction, but actually the workers, you know, get a vest on that guy uh, or that, that woman. Uh, so, and get the solution in the car as Stellantis has done with adopting Hosselert, as you say, uh, so that the, the driver can get those signals. Hey, there's someone right at the edge of the road that you're driving down right now. Mm -hmm. Be careful. Mm -hmm. And uh, that applies to, to bikes. I was just talking to a guy with a company called Emergency Safety Solutions. That's for individuals who have to pull over to work on their vehicles. I, I'm, I'm sure you're like me. You see someone get a flat tire on the side of the road and you're thinking to yourself, I'm not even going to try to change that flat tire. Uh, you know, I'm going to leave that to the professionals. It's too dangerous. Um, so we, we, yes, we have a problem there. And it, it may be you know, uh, hundreds of people that are killed in these scenarios every year, but that's, uh, you know, that's hundreds of people too many. Um, mm -hmm. we, we need to solve that problem. Yeah. There's, we, we're doing a lot of work in industry to help sync up and align with folks from the .gov community, including federal highway and NHTSA. I'm really encouraged about CES. So we were back um, in, in a smaller fashion this year, I'm really excited about January with the e-mobility uh, expo outside. I'm, I'm looking forward to welcoming a number of folks from um, uh, state DOTs, uh, large city, and even you know suburban city DOTs, and then the the uh, government folks. Because really, the there's a lot that has to happen because you, not it's not just the tech. We're in in the consumer world, and even to some extent, auto. If you look at what Tesla just straight up just did, like, hey, okay, we're just launching this and. The, the regulators can catch up. When you talk about like works on safety or police fire, you got to update the uniform guidelines for the, the state highway safety programs and go through a number of boards. Then you've got the standards groups that, for auto. You got groups like SAE that you have to go through. And I mean, there's a lot of checks and balances, which, which help keep the safe technology safe and that they, it works properly. And we hope avoiding um, like dictated government regulation that is not promoted by outside industry well mandates and dictates aren't necessarily uh, horrible so NHTSA came out and required reporting of uh, level two mm -hmm. uh, collisions that result in fatalities uh, or injuries and uh, you know clearly car companies are under reporting because the numbers were way too low uh, so 
Um, something's not right about that. But more importantly, cars are required to have an event data recorder. Cars in the U.S. are not required to have a connection, but you can't buy a car that doesn't have a wireless connection. Why don't we put those two together, mm. okay, that there is an obligation to report that data out in the event of a crash uh, and that uh, it's collected. Now, maybe even more importantly, that data is communicated directly to public service access points. Uh, so there's no delay in going through a call center mm -hmm. to get that data redirected uh, to the PSAP. Now, are the PSAPs ready to handle this information? No. Is NHTSA ready to handle this information and put it to work immediately? Uh, clearly from the report they published, uh, they are not prepared. Uh, they don't have the resources today. But we, we, what did they say in the six million dollar man? We have the technology. We can make them. We can make these cars better than they are. Uh, we have the solution right, right in our hands. And and it may take a mandate to say you have to connect the EDR to the connection in the car. Yeah, I, I want to uh, double down on your last point that for uh, PSAPs, which for those of you that are outside of that industry, we're talking about the public safety answering points, so things like 911 uh, response, that what I'm hearing, Roger, I don't want to make this is a good kind of clarification discussion point, is that data um, sharing data, sometimes called data federation, and and being transparent about this is pretty important. A lot of the the anonymized, making sure there's no personal identifiable information, PII is part of it, but getting that data out can only help improve safety. My comment was, uh, and I didn't say this, uh, but I, I want to clarify that my comment was more about picking safety technologies and specific, specific sensor suites and other things that are heavily uh, lobbied to be in, as opposed to private industry that can bring forward things that are based on pre-competitive standards. So if somebody is able to lobby their way into a regulation, then that particular private company then kind of holds that, um, hold can, at least it's possible to hold that and then increase the cost, which then decreases the ability for the average person out there to have this or in a bicycle standpoint, which are not licensed vehicles in, in most areas of the world. And in my opinion, personal opinion should not be, I mean, you got someone that's low income and that's the only way he or she has a way to get to work. Last thing we want to do is make them put a $300 widget on their bike so they can use the shared bike lane. My thought here is that I think that the types of regulation that, that we would um, like to, I guess, discuss a little bit more are things about being open and transparent versus things that are saying, a proprietary solution that only one or two, you get you end up with an oligopoly situation, have access to, which then can only rise rise the cost of it. But uh, curious to get your thoughts on that, Roger. Well, I think the the bigger concern from my perspective is the regulatory capture of NHTSA by the automotive industry. There's so many former automotive engineers that are working within NHTSA, and it seems like everything is about slowing things down as opposed to speeding things to market. And I think you and I both know a lot of uh, folks who have beat their head against, you know, the doors of the US DOT, trying to get uh, some new I safety idea adopted or at least evaluated. And of course, the evaluation process, the testing, I mean, my hat is off to the testing that is done there, but it creates such a lag in terms of delivering solutions to the market. Now with automatic emergency braking, uh, they, they got the industry to sort of, so they, so what did they do? So in under Obama, they switched to voluntary, like mm -hmm. get voluntary uh, cooperation in the industry to try to move things forward a little bit more rapidly. The only problem being that actually 
we want a more robust solution than just automatic emergency braking kind of at low speeds. And that does require some further testing and evaluation uh, to, to get to that standard. There are some requirements that are right on the cusp. All the research has been done, such as the anti-drinking technologies that are that are all the research has been done for all the different solutions that can be applied. And I believe we're just a year or two away from uh, some kind of regulatory action uh, requiring uh, anti-DUI interlock uh, devices in the car to prevent drunk driving. And if when you look at the data, drunk driving is a massive contributor. So it's not one of these, uh, you know, the backup camera kind of mandate mm-hmm. that's going to save, you know, a couple of hundred uh, people from being backed over or um, the mandate for detecting someone in the back seat that might save you know, a, a few dozen lives a year. Uh, anti-drunk driving uh, functionality in the car would save thousands and thousands of lives. Mm-hmm. So that's a, that, that could be a big breakthrough. Yeah, we, we've always looked at prioritizing at our company the, uh, the number of people that we can help improve, whether they're fatalities or serious injuries. And then the other thing is the, the, uh, the, we, we look at what's the likelihood of the confidence level the technology is ready to deploy and that people will accept it. And there are definitely some technologies. And one of the biggest things that we started with, and this was from the early, the original, I think it was the original workshop with, with Tom Trek and Ford. Uh, I don't remember what year this was a while ago. And it was like, we should be focusing on sober drivers that are not distracted, trying to do the right thing. And cyclists that are not running four-way stop signs and, you know, in the, in like obeying traffic laws and in the correct place that they were, they're supposed to be. And if that was kind of our sandbox of our starting point, because, um, you end up opening up a bit of a Pandora's box with other issues when you look at, uh, creating protection schemes for people that are behaving inappropriately or illegally. So, uh, to your point, I think that as we look at these types of safety options and work with .gov, I, I think for our listeners today is like if you maybe the, the, one of the things that you could take away from from this this discussion is what are some of the features and functionality within safety, active or passive, that can kind of meet a criteria where it would be welcomed by the other side or by regulators where they would go, yeah, and probably pre-competitive as well. Well, here's an example, driver monitoring systems, which are becoming a requirement in Europe and are likely to become standard in the US, whether we mandate it or not. Um, and the perfect example of that is Super Cruise. If you wanna use Super Cruise, you're going to have to agree to be monitored by the system to make sure you're paying attention. Mm-hmm. But there's a little uh, value proposition in having that driver monitoring technology, which is, Maybe you get credentialed in the car with facial recognition, which is actually quite popular and widespread in China. And then, you know, you don't have to get in the car and have that moment. Is, is my phone connecting? Is it not connecting? Mm-hmm. It scans your face in a, in a flash, your personal cloud, whether it's Amazon, Apple uh, or Google or all of the above is immediately infused into the car. Uh, and when you leave the car, by the way, it's deleted and removed. Um, but the point is, uh, the car knows me, knows my destinations, knows everything. It doesn't have to retain it in the vehicle. It's in the cloud, but immediately activated with facial recognition. And oh, by the way, that facial recognition is there as a safety measure to make sure you're paying attention and not falling asleep or having a medical problem. Wow, that's that's a great way to put it. So there's something in it for everybody. So you're trading off some anonymity or trading off some some of your privacy for a better experience and also safety for those of you in the vehicle and around. Exactly. I hope that works. Uh, I think there's there's something there. So for all of the engineers and engineering management teams that are listening, there there's something there from Roger. 
uh, as we as we begin to wrap up on on the show, I'm I'm curious as what hot topics are you seeing for the next? And I normally would say like like year, but I almost say this summer and the fall. Like what's hot right now that you're tracking personally? Well, I think this whole world of semi-automated driving, you know, the super cruise kind of functionality. I think it's nothing less than shocking uh, that such a pioneering, uh, almost terrifying uh, feature has be, has uh, been converted into a commonplace uh, enhancement to uh, GM vehicles and is spreading rapidly through the product line. And it uh, lets people take their hands off the wheel. Uh, the idea being, of course, you're on a long drive, it's tiring, uh, but as long as you're paying attention, you, you can do that. You can take your hands off the wheel. And I, I have to take GM's word for it. We haven't done our own uh, consumer surveys on this subject, but the, the feedback is, is very positive and almost every other competing automaker on the planet is working on this uh, kind of technology. And this actually makes sense. Uh, and it begins to address what Tesla's overall advantage is, which is Tesla is allowing its computers to learn from the humans. It's allowing the humans to teach the computers how to drive. That makes sense to me. And that is a huge competitive advantage that Tesla has. That, of course, and the fact that Tesla controls practically its entire aftermarket, which is a very profitable uh, piece of business. Robotaxis, I think, are just utter nonsense. And um, I, I'm, I'm still struggling to see what the collateral value proposition might might be that could be derived from them. Because robotaxis, you're taking a computer that that's trying to figure out how humans drive on its own by looking at all the by reacting to the environment and operating based on you know certain rules and algorithms and uh i i just don't think that's going to going to work the tesla approach allowing the humans to teach the computers how humans drive that makes sense to me. Humans actually drive pretty well in spite of what you've read. And one last question for the show. Any favorite podcasts, newsletters, or shows that you listen to to uh, stay up on things you can share with our listeners? Well, it's a little quirky listening to Alan Kornhauser on Smart Driving Car, but uh, every now and then he uh, he gets a, gets a gem, a, a good uh, uh, visitor on, on the podcast, and um, uh, his insights, because he's training the future generation of autonomous vehicle developers at Princeton, uh, so he's he's worth a listen. Pete Bigelow at Shift gets a, a, a decent guest every now and again, uh, so those would be the two non-automotive. I'd say Skullduggery. Awesome. We will make sure to put those links into the description. Thanks, Roger. Roger Lanto, director in the Global Automotive Practices Strategy Analytics, uh, now part of Tech Insights. Please be sure to follow Roger and join the over 195,000 followers on LinkedIn. Wow, that's that's insane on uh, on uh, LinkedIn and check him out. I'm your host, Jake Siegel. Thanks again for listening and we'll see you next time in the bike lane.